episode of Inside the Recording Studio. I am Jody Whitesides, and with me, as always, is Mr. Chris Halstrom. How are you today, Chris? Doing very well, Jody. How are you doing, buddy? I'm doing all right as well. Are you feeling like super refreshed or something? Sure. Yeah, let's go with that. Yeah. <laughs> you just sound a little bit more chipper than normal. Well, yeah, I do feel a little refreshed. I have taken a few days to not do a whole lot, just to kind of recharge the batteries a little bit. So I'm feeling nice and peppy. Sweet. So peppy yeah. that you're going to help dish out 10 tips to work on a mix? I am. I'm going to be a part of it anyway. I'm hoping you're in this with me, right? Today's topic is, like you said, we're dealing with 10 tips that are universal enough that they essentially end up in every mix. One would think. Yeah. And so they're not things like, well, oh, only if you're doing metal or if you're doing Bolivian country music. I don't know. But um, (laughs) universal enough that they kind of find themselves into every mix. Just about. Rock on. So should we just dive in then? Yes, I'll take on the first one here that we have in our little list, and it is don't mix too loud. Yeah. And the funny thing about that is I have a client who has literally asked me, how can you possibly mix when things are that quiet? (laughs) As your monitoring level? Yes. And the idea is is that if it sounds great in this low level, you're going to have a really awesome mix when it's turned up loud. That's my concept anyway, and I'm sticking to it. For me, it's a matter of if I'm listening to things really loud, my ears will get tired. And that's not a fun place to be when you're trying to make a living listening to sound. I absolutely agree. I mean, you end up losing your objectivity pretty darn quickly Mm -hmm. once you start your ears start to fatigue, right? And I've even heard people ask for like advice and like, oh, I can only mix for an hour and then I'm toast. Hmm. It's like, well, that's not a long time to sit to mix something, right? So the first thing I would probably check there is how loud are you monitoring? Yeah. Because as soon as you're starting and tired, you hear stuff differently. That's a good way of saying it. (laughs) Not appropriately. Yeah. Now, I mean, to play devil's advocate here, there are certain aspects of a mix that I find anyway that you need to bump the level a bit to get. And for me, that's usually like low end. You start hearing that a little bit differently if you crank and make sure it's there. But don't stay there long, Mm -mm. right? So if you're doing that, just check how things are at higher levels. That's a good thing. I don't know about you, but when I'm mixing, I can have a conversation in the room. Oh, yeah, for sure. Like As far as like that level. Mm -hmm. So is that the same for you? or Yeah. Do you have a specific setting that you kind of go to, or is it just like, oh, this is comfortable level when I'm mixing it? Do you go by any kind of like metering or anything like that, any kind of SPL value? or? No, I do not use an SPL value on the mix bus or anything of that nature, but I do have two presets in my volume levels out of my interface that I have a key switch that I can hit it, and I know which version I'm listening to. So I get two different values. The original value that I have it set, that is when everything boots up, is normal listening level, which Mm -hmm. is not very loud. Right. And then I have a second switch to the same key command that when I hit that, it bumps it up a bunch of dB so I can hear it in its quote-unquote loud form for a short period of time, and then I can hit it again and go right back to that exact same volume level. 
That's pretty handy. So you're actually mixing at a really consistent level as far as like your gear is concerned. Oh yeah. That's good. Yeah. That's I good. don't I don't I don't manipulate go. it by hand. I have a key command and it is set to specific values. This is my normal mix value. This is my bump it up, let's listen to it kind of loud value and then back. And it's the same key command. It toggles between the two volume levels and it's very nice that way. That's really cool. Yeah. That's really, really What's cool. The second yeah. one? Thinking about levels here is to uh, keep an eye and an ear on your master bus. Mm -hmm. This is something that I know I struggled with when I started mixing, where as soon as you add elements to a mix, you start overloading that master bus. Yep. So keeping an eye on when you start, as a reference, you might be bringing up the drum kit or whatever, that you're not tickling zero as it is as you're starting because you're going to run into problems that's one of those things that where you okay now i need to hear more guitar or i need to hear more xyz whatever mm -hmm. and you start just feeding more and more and more and all of a sudden you're even if you're not clipping the output you might be overloading any processing that you have there and it's just usually a good idea to to do that a little bit lower Gain staging helps with this, right? Because you're less likely to. On a per instrument and per track situation you're talking about. Yes, absolutely. That's something that I think we've addressed in mix prep before you sit down and, and mix, right? When you're kind yes. of prepping your tracks to, to have that. Never mind gain staging as far as like peak levels for analog gear emulations. When you're pulling up every track that you don't, necessarily just kind of slam your your master bus is a it's a good reason or as good a reason as any to to kind of keep track of your game staging there once upon a time in a galaxy far far away when digital recording first got going it did make sense to actually keep your tracks kind of hot and your mix bus hot it had sure. more to do with the fact that you didn't have a lot of headroom in terms of hearing zipper noise as we used to call it that has been done away with modern DAWs and modern recordings. So you don't have to worry about that anymore, which means you can go back to the more natural concept of the gain staging and the analog value of what it used to be in analog world of tape. My aha moment with that is when I got the individual multi-tracks from Walk This Way. Mm -hmm. All I had to do was put them all onto individual tracks for each track that I had in the multi-tracks. All the faders were set to zero, and it was like the mix was already there. <laughs> and it wasn't blaring, and it wasn't loud, and everything was hitting roughly around minus 18. That's where I learned that minus 18 dB thing. Yeah. And it sounded but brilliant at that point. It didn't take a lot of effort to get the mix to get to the final stage of where it would be where the record was. Right. In all fairness, though, at that point when those were outputted or converted to digital, mm -hmm. they probably had the processing on them, right? Any sort of onboard processing that it might, might have had that. It doesn't take away from the point that you arrived at, the minus 18, if you're peaking there or a little bit above, right? You're in a good spot because everything will build up and, and sound better, as it were, as opposed to having to pull everything down yes. on each track here. Exactly. Yeah. What do we got next? EQing your reverb and delay returns. Absolutely. This is something you do more than I do, I think. How dare you? You don't mm. do this, right? Only no, I do when this. I need a special effect on it, really. This is something I do every mix, just mm -hmm. about every return. We've addressed this in 
prior episodes, when I have, let's say, a reverb on Ascend, I will frequently do a high cut and a low cut on that reverb return. It's not super aggressive like I'm trying to really sculpt the sound. I find that reverb builds up a lot in the low end. Yes. And at the top, it could, sure, it could add clarity and it could add all that sexiness in the high end. It can also just be noise. I will frequently take out up until at least 200 on a reverb return mm. because I find that it just clutters up the mix. And the high end for me will be dependent on just what sounds good. And of course, it's the same with, with the low end. Here I might not be as aggressive, anything above like 10K perhaps. Mm -hmm. It's like a good candidate to, to sort of take that out. What that will do, at least for me, I can have more reverb. I, the signal can actually be wetter in the mix by just removing the extremes. Sure. And it's not going to be as overbearing. And I do the same with delay returns. Same thing there. I, sometimes I get even more aggressive with those. As I get fact. more aggressive with the delays than I do the reverbs. But I use the built-in stuff on most reverbs to deal with that rather than adding a second EQ after it, unless I'm trying to really sculpt the sound. That's oh, where yeah, I think yeah. we differ in that. No, no, no. I, d I do the same thing. Mm, so it's like okay. if it's the reverb I have has a um, built-in EQ, and some of them do, I will use that. And Otherwise, there, it will. You've said it. It's done. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. No, but, but if it doesn't, then it's just a matter of adding an EQ afterwards, right? And I just take out the appropriate amount. Either way, it doesn't matter how you do it. It's just the process I like of doing that. The result for me is a cleaner mix. Mm -hmm. So, there you Next go. up. Don't mix in solo mode for too long. This is something that I'm pretty sure both of us have learned the hard way. If you're starting out with mixing, take this advice. Don't mix in solo mode on, on instrument groups for very long. Mm -hmm. I've made the mistake several times when I started out. I would sit and just mix the drums and just all drums. And I'm like, oh, my God, listen to that snare. It's so glorious. And it <laughs> sounds great. And then when you bring in everything else, what happened to that glorious snare? I can't hear it now. It's not as present as I wanted it to be. Wah, wah. Yeah. When you're listening to anything in solo, nobody is ever going to hear it that way, assuming they don't have the multitracks, right? There but, is that. Yeah. There are cases where I will do a solo listen to, and it's usually for me if I'm trying to isolate an issue mm -hmm. with said instrument or track. Like a resonant peak or a rumble or something of that nature, right? Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you do the same thing? I mean, how, how often do you actually solo something when you're mixing? Very rare. Right. Very rare. And it's a quick thing, right, to kind of isolate and tune in your ear to something, right? Yes. It's if something is like, wait, where did that come from? What is what is going on there? I will quickly start soloing things to figure out where it is and then remove that little item and then go back to everything being full and together. That's a really good way of saying it. When you're like, hey, what's going on here? You mm -hmm. know, you, you find out and, and solve the issue. Yeah, don't listen to solo mode. You get your ears again will start to deceive you, mm -hmm. right? When you, you're focusing in on things in a way that you're not going to hear it. Going back to the drum kit thing there, it's not just the level between the kit pieces, perhaps. It could be like, oh, the low end of the kick is awesome. 
And then the bass and the synths and the everything else come in and what happened to your glorious boomy kick drum, right? Now it's not present anymore. We're listening to things in a way that you're not really going to hear. And ultimately, it doesn't really make sense to try to tweak something EQ-wise or, or compression-wise, whatever, in solo mode, because you're just not going to hear it that way. And that's a, you know, a lesson I think we all learn. And speaking of solo things, let's take a word from our sponsors. And we're back. We are going to move on. What's next, Chris? Don't be afraid of drastic EQ moves. Mm -hmm. So what's your thought on that? Sometimes you have to be drastic in order to get the sound you want. And drastic EQ moves might really be the right thing at the right time. I agree. It goes back to what we just talked about, mixing in solo mode, right? Where let's say that snare that I mentioned. Mm -hmm. is sounding really, really good and natural and has all those elements that you might want when you're soloing the instrument, but then it just doesn't cut in the mix, right? If you need to add some presence to that and boost 8K, do that. Do you know, it. again, nobody's going to hear it in, in isolation, right? When I started again, I was hearing and getting all these pieces of advice and reading them on, on internet forums and it said, you should never boost or cut more than a couple of dB. Wrong. Yeah, it's absolute nonsense, right? It is nonsense. You boost or cut until you get the correct sound that you need. That being said, you have to do it in an environment where the room is giving you a realistic view of the sound. If you well, are doing that. this in your bedroom that is ill-appropriately tuned, so to speak, without proper sound abatement and other things, you might be EQing drastically to fix things within your room that d won't sound good in an actual mix on other devices. That's the caveat I'll throw in on that. Then you're dealing with mixed translation issues either way, right? Mm -hmm. But yes, if you're compensating for essentially your room to make something sound good, then that's, you know, obviously no bueno. I remember where I was watching a video and I saw one of the Lord Algae brothers, it was either Chris or Tom, it doesn't matter because I think they both do this, but they were showing like moves that they have been doing. Yeah, boosting like 10 dB at 8K, but it sounded freaking great, right? <laughs> where you might look at that, oh no, I shouldn't do this, but no, whatever you have to do to make it work in the track, that's the move that you have to make. You could argue in something that you and I stress is that if you need to make drastic moves, the tracking itself may not have been recorded very well. So that there's sort of like a compensation thing that goes on there. But that's not always the case. Sometimes the best recorded instrument in the world needs a bit of tweaking to sit in your track. Yeah. Thoughts on that, Jody? Nope. No? All right. What's next on our list? Automation moves. You got them? Every mix. <laughs> a lot of them, yeah. It sounds obvious when you're pointing it out, right? I have received mixes for just like for critique and things that people have sent me and they go, hey, what do you think of this? And sometimes a mix will just suffer from just being really, really static and mm -hmm. lifeless. And no it's movement. one of those. Yeah, there's nothing happening, right? Even just subtle movements can do wonders. I know one thing that you often do is if you have a guitar-driven song, mm -hmm. on a chorus, you will pan your guitars out wider yep. on a chorus type of mm -hmm. thing, right? 
That's so not necessarily so much automation, but it is movement. Well, to me, it's a pan movement. It's a pan automation, right? I'm not necessarily thinking about just level mm -hmm. automation. I think anything where you kind of add a little bit of movement to the mix, be it volume or where it's placed in the stereo field, adds interest. So it could be just something that's a tambourine that's slightly panny left or right or whatever, or the guitar thing that you often do. I do the same, by the way. I think it's, mm -hmm. it, it's a cool thing to add extra interest. Even subtle things will just make the mix kind of come alive. Make it so. breathe, make it move, make it do something. You can also use automation in a manner of fixing issues. I had one particular song where there was a dissonance happening. And after soloing each track to try and figure out where the dissonance was occurring, it turned out that it was a dissonance between the guitar chord and the hi-hat, which was I remember absolutely you telling that story. <laughs> fucking annoying. So I ended up having to do, and it was only on one chord hit. The other time that the same chord hit would happen on the guitar, it didn't conflict with the hi-hat, which was so strange. I had to do an automation move on that one particular hi-hat moment to remove a certain frequency out of the hi-hat on that one particular guitar chord just so that it wouldn't have that dissonance. It was so crazy. That is, it had to be something what, just how he hit the how hi-hat. How he hit the hi-hat. It was just, it, whatever it did, it resonated wrong with the guitar chord at that particular time and it made it sound super off in the song. Fixed it with automation. So sometimes automation is there for the life and the breathing of the song, and it's also sometimes there to fix absolute problems that need to go away. What's next? Use of distortion can add energy to a track. Mm -hmm. This is your favorite thing. Well, it's something I do. I get dubbed the distortion guy here, but I think that has more to do with my late 90s Industrial <laughs> nerd maybe, <laughs> period. Maybe, maybe, maybe. Maybe, maybe. Well, I, I, I'll wear it proudly. We think of distortion, obviously, when we're thinking about electric guitars, all this kind of stuff. But distortion, I find, is a very useful tool to add some attitude and energy to a track. Mm -hmm. Often from, it can be used also for adding harmonic value to a particular instrument or track as well. Sure, that's kind of what you're doing, right? You're, you're introducing harmonics with the use of distortion. It's something that I will use subtly on a, a vocal track a lot of times. Keyword here being subtle, unless you're going for a full-blown industrial thing, right? Slight overdrive on a vocal track can do wonders. Even any other instrument like snare drum can benefit from that. I've used it on percussion to make it sit better and horn tracks and yeah oh yeah oh yeah horn tracks were great for that i'm a big fan of decapitator from sound toys and sometimes just popping that on in the default state would just like okay cool that there it is right mm -hmm. that works fine do you have a favorite one trash yeah yep trash 2 from isotope is my favorite sometimes i don't get to use it but it's hopefully going to make a comeback I like trash as well. It just, for me, I don't know what it was, but when I tried Decapitator, and this is not sponsored by Sound Toys, <laughs> but uh, it's... Uh, it gave you a chubby it, is what you're saying. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, as much as nobody wants to think about that, but yeah, it, it always does work. And, and it's not necessarily that I use it to extreme values either, because it has that 
just like completely overblown mode, just adding a little bit of grit to a track can do wonders. So don't be afraid of it. It's not just for, for guitars, right? What's the next one? Don't assume that every single track in your mix needs to be processed in terms of EQ, delay, reverb, effects, compression. It's not always needed on every single instrument. That's period. a big one. It yeah, is. that's a big one to learn. And I'd like to think that I've learned it, but uh, <laughs> every once in a while it's still, especially when your track count starts to build up, right? I think this goes back a little bit to also the listening in solo mode when you're assuming that every track needs some kind of processing. When in reality, it just doesn't. True. Right? And I think the fact that we have all these tools and plug-in form that we can go in and just add it everywhere, we kind of have a willingness to, to use it even though it isn't there. I've, I know I've done mixes. I go back and I try to get stuff to sit properly and sometimes just disabling the processing on, on a certain track can just make it so yeah I, I i don't need that there that's it's fine word yeah how do you deal with that though i mean do you go in with a mindset of using as little processing as possible or do you have sort of habits that are hard to kill off where you want to just kind of reach for a certain processing right away well considering i do most of my mixing now in a console type set up an arrangement in the DAW, I don't use as much processing. And I don't always turn on the compression. In fact, quite often I don't <laughs> now. Yeah. I just don't feel like I need as much compression on a lot of things. That being said to the world here, if it needs compression, I'm going to put it on there. Mm -hmm. My taste has changed in that regard, so I will do it differently but I still use a fair amount of compression and or limiting depending on what the mix and the final product is going for, for sure. And of course, this is also how much processing is needed is very, very style dependent. It I is. would say that when you have more electronic forms of music, in you need my to hammer opinion, that shit into submission. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I mean, it, it, it's par for the course, right? You're not necessarily going for realism here. I, what is realism? When you're dealing with like walls of synths or whatever it is, high energy, don't be afraid of processing stuff a lot. Yeah. Right? Now, I've had a case where I was recording tracks for somebody and it was for well, a certain situation, doesn't matter. I was given instructions initially, not metal. We don't want this to sound metal. The drums are not going to sound metal. Mm -hmm. And... Turns out they didn't necessarily like what I did, which is fine. But then somebody else did it, and I ended up hearing the result. That's freaking metal drums right there. <laughs> so sometimes it's just like communication, right? But, but again, here I assumed that they didn't want a whole lot of processing. My mistake. You move on and you learn from it, right? Things don't always need a whole lot of processing, except when it does. And when it does, don't be afraid of doing it. And by that same token, don't overcook the processing on your master bus. This is our final little token in this situation, right? Absolutely. You and I differ in this. I Very like much to. So. Yep. I like to mix into a little bit of, of bus compression. Mm -hmm. Slight, slight EQ moves that I have on there as well. 
This is something that in my workflow, I have to keep myself in check on because once the mix starts growing, if your compression on the bus is set too aggressively, you start more and more squeezing the life out of your mix. Mm-hmm. I will very often go back and revise the threshold there so I'm not super slamming the mix because you end up doing yourself a disservice, right? Because the, the more you send into it, you end up losing life. So you send more into it and you're losing even more life of the mix, right? Yeah. So overcooking the master bus is a very real thing that unless we're careful and we have to ask ourselves, like, well, what are we actually trying to do with this? And to me, it's just a little bit of mixed glue. But you yeah. have a different philosophy on that because you don't really use anything on your master bus. Right? I don't. I do a very different style of mixing. Everything goes to buses for the individual stems of all of the groupings. And mm-hmm. those go all together to the final mix in various forms. And the final mix doesn't get any kind of additional processing over what the buses of each individual group gets until it goes to mastering. That's where that happens for my mixes. Yeah. And I should say that when I'm doing stuff for libraries and things, my workflow is a lot more like yours, Mm -hmm. where it is that because processing something on the master bus doesn't make any sense if you're not sending everything to it. <laughs> right. So yeah, there you go. So there's 10 tips for you, Jody. All right. I'm going to take them in and ask for us to move on to our Friday finds. Chris, what have you got this week? Something came into my inbox the other day, and I thought this was fairly serendipitous because a few episodes ago, we talked about cleaning up your plugin folders from old demos and, and plugins that we no longer use. Wide Blue Sound have released a plugin or an application. It's called Audio Plugin Uninstaller. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to give that a try here. Now, I usually do this manually, as we discussed, but this claims to get rid of all the errant files that all the plugins that where they place them in all the different folders. So I'm interested to give this one a whirl here. And as of the recording right now, it's also free. So yay. So audio plugin uninstaller from Wide Blue Sound. And Jody, what have you discovered? There is a Reddit user who has created a database of over 10,000 plugins that are available for those of us that work in DAWs and such. He has made it available to everybody in order to learn when there's actual sales and free versions going out. You go to audiobazooka.com, and that's audio, B-A-Z-O-O-K-A, that's how you would spell bazooka.com. You can get on his little list and he will let you know when it's on sale or free. Wow. 10,000 plus plugins. That's a lot of work. That sounds like that could get expensive real quick. Mm-hmm. <laughs> While we've got your attention, we ask that you go to insidetherecordingstudio.com and sign up for our mailing list. You'll need to be on the email list in order to be eligible for future giveaways, and we'll make sure you don't miss any future episodes of this podcast. Send us an email at goldstar, G-O-L-D-S-T-A-R, at insidetherecordingstudio.com with the phrase mix tips, and you'll get something cool back in your 
inbox. If you have a topic or suggestion for Chris and I to explain in a future episode, contact us at the contact page and we'll put it into consideration for a future episode. With that, I'll say see you next week. Thanks for listening, everybody. Have a fantastic day, Jody. Jody.